You may have noticed that I've just callously cut short our lovely Star and Shadow jingle there. Frankly, that's a gimmick. And I say that with no disrespect to the friend of the programme, whose idea it was that I should start the first episode like that. But it is a gimmick, and it's there to introduce the idea of this programme, which is called Unfinished Unpublished. The idea is to celebrate creative projects that never got finished and it's also about celebrating the value to be found in doing creative projects in private and for fun rather than for money or acclaim. I'm interested in why we tend to see greater worth in creative work that's complete and that's made public. I'm going to hear stories about why projects don't get finished And I'd like to know what might happen if we released ourselves from pressure to finish things and from pressure to publicise and publish our art. I'll be asking my guests what secrets they have in their bottom drawers, what's tucked away at the back of their bookshelves, what's saved in the corners of their laptops and what might be lurking in their knitting bags. Yes, I am aware of the irony that I'm asking guests to talk about private projects on the radio. If you like irony too, and have an unfinished or unpublished project you'd like to talk about, you can get in touch with me by emailing unfinished.unpublished at gmail.com. My first guest is a musician called Sophie Cooper. The project she's here to talk about is actually a visual artwork though, but it does have a musical connection. It's called Progland, and it's a model of an imaginary theme park where all the rides are based on the covers of prog rock albums. The only part of the model Sophie made was an enormous green teapot, which came to an unfortunate end. Sophie was an absolute delight to talk to, Hopefully it came across in the interview how much I liked her. And as well as Progland, we talked about how trombones are inherently amusing, how Sophie had a pretty devastating experience of bad teaching when she did A-level music, which she luckily overcame. We talked about the importance of the DIY music scene and an artwork she did that involved a giant robot having a fight with a dinosaur. During the programme, I'll also be playing a record titled Nowhere From The Water To Go, which is by a band Sophie's in called The Slowest Lift. At the moment, Sophie is working on a spoof breakfast TV show for the Tusk Festival, which is online this year, as well as a commission for the BBC, an online gig for Feeding Tube Records and a solo album. You can find out more about Sophie's work on her website, which is sophiecoopermusic.com. Okay, uh, well, if you're good to go, yeah. I'll just do your little bio and then I'll say hi and we can crack on. Cool, all right. I might get something to draw on. That'd be nice. Yeah, feel free to doodle. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Hey. <laughs> So I'm just saying hello to my dog. <laughs> like, hi. Aww. Yeah. Here as well. So, yeah. Right, ready. Okay, cool. Sophie Cooper is a musician, curator, educator, and creative project facilitator. She's at the centre of the experimental music scene in West Yorkshire, where she's based, having worked for two decades as a songwriter and performer, playing a mixture of guitar and trombone. She promotes performances in Todmorden under the name of Tor Bookings, and she is the founder of the Tor Festival. And if that isn't enough, Sophie also runs workshops specialising in music technology, creative mentoring and music for early years. And she is the leader of the Young Curators Project at Huddersfield Contemporary Music Festival. I've really enjoyed listening to Sophie's music in preparation for this programme, including in particular some very beautiful, 
calming pared down tracks that she performs on guitar. So thank you for that, Sophie. It really has been a joy and welcome to the programme. Hello, Emily. All right. (laughs) Now, one of my favourite descriptions of you that I found comes from Brian Coley of The Wire, who says that you are a wonderful musician who plays lightly deranged guitar and or keys while singing like she sees bats everywhere. That's right, yeah. It's a fantastic image. (laughs) Is that what you're going for in your music? It's funny, actually, before that came out in The Wire, the um, editor of The Wire, Derek Wormsley, he wrote to me and said, oh, there's this description coming out of you. I hope you find it funny. I was just like, yeah. No, it's hilarious. It's very Byron Coley kind of way of describing stuff as well. But um, yeah, I guess like at that time when he wrote it, it, I was like performing live guitar and singing a lot, which I'm actually going to do again like next week, uh, weirdly, coincidentally. Yeah, I was sort of singing in quite like fractured, hidden up ways and stuff. So I, I can see where he's coming from, coming from with that. And it, to be called Wonderful British Museum by Byron Coley is, is a compliment in itself, to be fair. So the rest is fine. You, you can say what you want. <laughs> I think the bats is also a compliment. Yeah, I'm cool. I'm, I like nature. You know, I live in the countryside. So that works for me. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this, actually. So you're involved in the DIY music scene, particularly in West Yorkshire, where you're based, I think. A lot of our listeners are a bit further up in Newcastle. So could you tell us kind of what that scene looks like at the moment and maybe a bit about what's been going on there over the past few years? Yeah, of course. Um, well, obviously, at the moment, it's a bit all up in the air, you know, but like, yeah, we li- I live in West Yorkshire, so a place called Todmorden, which is um, slap bang in the middle of Manchester and Leeds. That's the geography of it. And we are a small town, but somehow have managed to cultivate a pretty vibrant live scene here, really around the genres of like experimentation, new music, psychedelia. There's a lot of like psych rock bands around this area um, and they've come to perform here at various uh, venues actually over the years. We, we've had a big church that we can sometimes use. Actually, we have Todmond and Folk Festival that's really, really popular in May. So there's a big, a big folk scene, actually quite a few um, up from your way, like Kath and Phil Tyler come down. They perform here quite regularly. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah you know those guys. Yeah. So there's that, and then we've got a pub called The Golden Lion where I've been, like, programming gigs for about, getting on for about five years there. They've had it. Um, so I was there right right at the beginning of them opening it. They've, they're have they just really supportive around, like, DIY, like, gigs and stuff. Like, they don't charge for the venue, and they they look after the artists. And there's this really kind of, like, collective uh, response to, like, looking after artists who come perform in the town and, everyone gets looked after properly and has a really good time. So I think that's kind of like what sort of epitomises playing in the area. But yeah, increasingly I've been here like seven years. More and more artists and musicians are moving out this way, I suppose. It's getting gentrified basically um, for right or wrong reasons. But yeah, you got a lot of people moving out from Manchester, particularly after like the um you know COVID-19 kicking off like I think people living in cities have gone oh right where can we live that's fairly cheap and still fairly close to a town and it's sort of Tomberton's kind of like the perfect sort of area for that you've got you've got the mixture of the town and all the stuff that's going on and like two minutes you're up on the tops and, and I can walk my dog there every day and stuff so yeah it's got a lot it's got a lot going for it it's very nice and uh geographically I appreciate living here because I can get anywhere in the country. So, like, under normal circumstances, like going touring's pretty, pretty good because you know, two hours from Newcastle, four hours from Glasgow. You know, yeah. what is it? Four hours from London. So it's kind of great for that as well. Um, I didn't even mention tour festivals and all that. <laughs> I was about to ask, but yeah, is it is the folk is the folk festival the same thing as the tour festival? Are they two different things? This is a different thing. I'm not involved in the folk festival um, beyond being very supportive of it. No, um, okay. tour festival is um, mine and my partner's project. We've been doing that for about six years now. So as soon as we moved to the area, uh, we started putting on gigs together. I've been putting on gigs for absolute years, like in different locations, Manchester, London, and that. Um, but then, yeah, when we came to Todmorden, we were like, oh, right, let's uh, let's see what we can do sort of thing and met um, various venue owners who were quite supportive about us having their spaces. And then we were able to sort of put on like pretty low key, like noise and experimental gigs. 
and then just one thing led to another really and we ended up um putting the festival on which is which we've done six editions for. And we actually got funding for it last year for the first time, so that was quite exciting. Hurrah! I know, yeah, which was, you know, pluses and minuses. Like, because um, I'm also, like, very much involved with, like, DIY scene. I do, I do believe in selling tickets and making stuff happen, but having the funding was was quite interesting. And, uh, yeah, I'd probably try and get funding again. But, um, but we've not really programmed, well, we haven't programmed anything for Tour Festival this year for obvious reasons. So you've been putting on festivals for a little while. What are the key ingredients then for making a good festival? Um, good music, definitely. That's like the most important thing. Yeah. I think my, my main motivation for putting on the festival is so I don't have to travel anywhere. <laughs> I can just like <laughs> invite people here and go home at the end of the night. I'm not really a massive fan of touring or anything. I'll, I'll do it, but um, I like I like my own bed, basically. I love holidays, don't get me wrong, but I like, I like to come home at the end of a gig. So yeah, music, very important. What else is important? Good vibes, having a nice time, not being too stuck up about anything. I like to create quite a relaxed atmosphere. My partner sells beer as well, so we, we, the beard gets a flowing, I'm afraid, okay. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of part part of that. And I enjoy like um, I enjoy programming different kind of like happenings. I suppose is the word, isn't it? In like different parts of the pub, we use this big, big pub sort of complex, and we'll just stick on like I don't know a solo musician in a corner of a room that you might not expect or um or like someone comes and does a demonstration of some instrument they've been building or pop that in another corner and I'm quite into that like that surprise element so in, in addition to like you know you stage programming like pop little pop-up things that's what I'm into but mainly the atmosphere to be honest like I, I don't want to be too like heavy-handed with people or, or have really strict curfews or anything like that but having said that, on um, another thing that makes a really good festival is like the events happening on time. Like it really does my head in okay. to events and stuff. Stuff is running late, so I'm quite a stickler for like if it's if it's going on at ten, it's going on at ten. But I think that's because I'm a teacher as well, so I've got that timekeeping urge within my soul. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, like the teachers that I know are really useful for organising things. They're really good at just getting people to do what they need to do at the right time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I pride myself on that, to be honest. It's <laughs> my greatest yeah. <laughs> So thinking about your teaching, actually, I'm guessing this is related to the workshops that you run. And I was particularly interested in the early years ones. Can you tell us like what the workshops involve and what the children get out of it? Well, my early years kind of background, so when I say early years, it's like pre-five. I used to work for a company called Rhythm Time, yeah. who I worked for for five years. And they, they really gave me like, my real like first kind of chance in in teaching but with with those classes we'd split the children into three different age groups so you'd have four different age groups in fact you'd have the new baby so that was under 12 weeks old and then you'd have 12 weeks to walking you know around like 14 months or something and then you'd have the toddlers that's like tod whenever they start walking to about three and then three to five year olds and with like that three, I'll go backwards, like that three to five year old category, you're really teaching them like the basics of music theory, believe it or not. Yeah. You can teach them really basic like time signatures. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Like pitch changes, you know, what's high, what's low, what's fast, what's slow. These really like basic things, but I've seen some remarkable result, results out of those preschool classes. Like kids who can like keep a beat really easily or become really good dancers, actually. Yeah. I noticed like a lot of the kids went into like dance classes afterwards and excelled in them. But then in like the, the really young, the really young, like under 12 weeks, like the youngest child I ever had was three days old. That was just like... Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think at that age, like really... I th- it's it's a lot about the parents as well so just like getting the parents out of the house they've just had a baby mm. they don't know what to do at home so they come up they come to these classes for like a bit of socialization really as well and but at that, even at that age though you're like using like lights and uh so like contrast between light and dark and getting babies eyes to kind of follow a light while you're playing some beautiful like chilled out classical music Babies, babies can kind of like sing before they can talk as well, which is quite interesting. So I think singing is like a remarkable tool with mm. 
with the with the older babies and just kind of like changing your pitch when you're talking to children I mean this applies to like all pri- all primary teaching that I've done if you suddenly start talking in a really high voice you get like kids attention really easily so it's it's quite it's quite a powerful tool right all those so it's like not just music really it's, it's sound in general and like how how can how can children um respond to this and how 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 it like develops various like motor skills for example or like you know actually uh singing can help with walking there's been some studies into it and stuff like that kind of beat and movement again like dancing you know um yeah it's absolutely fascinating I love that stuff there's really yeah so I worked for them for like five years and then like to be honest it was a zero hours contract job and I was getting enough work but I, I wanted a salary job so I applied to work for HCMF and um ended up working for them but I worked for a few other I've worked for loads of different companies so it's because I, I just developed like that music teaching skills I'm from like teaching background my mum's yeah. a teacher my sister's a teacher and once you've learned those like basic teaching skills really if you're confident enough you can teach anything which is what I've just like applied myself to really and so someone would be like hey can you teach a field recording course I'm like yeah fine yeah like I'll do a day's research work it out <laughs> and then just make it happen like that really no, teaching's great. And I'm actually head of learning at um, HCMF now as well. My job title's just changed. So that's quite exciting. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. You, you've spoken there really passionately about the importance of teaching and how much you enjoy it. And that really comes across. And I was, I was wondering, because you do do lots of different things, is the one element of your work that you, that's most important to you or that you find most rewarding? Um, music just working with music really I think like I, I just find I think my whole like life would be pretty meaningless if I wasn't working no that's that's bollocks actually sorry it wouldn't be meaningless that's absolutely not <laughs> so, I, th- I think like working with music really fulfills me because I enjoy the subject so much I like look back at school and actually I was like probably better at art than I was at music but I never really enjoyed the practice of like putting a pen on a paper and drawing an image as much as I like desperately loved playing an instrument and making a sound I was like not I'm not particularly like naturally gifted at making music myself but I love it so much so I just persevere and just try and make it work you know but I think that's what's so great about working with experimental music because you're you're allowed to be within this world where you can do whatever you want you can play with sounds and you can throw paint around as it were and make a mess and you can just like make whatever you want work for you and I think I think that's just like perseverance and practice around music is like really fulfilling for my career but like I think working likewise though like I love people I I really enjoy working with people so working with like musical artists in whatever sense, like, you know, programming, HCMF, we support um, lots of different people to put on events and develop their own creative practices and stuff like that. And I just get such a kick out of it. I'm really, yeah, I feel really like lucky to have got to this point in my career, definitely. So listening to you talk about that, you know, you said, oh, you weren't naturally gifted at music, but I'd argue that the enthusiasm and the persistence itself is a natural gift. Yeah, I know. It's because I'm. It's because I like value it so much. I think that's what it is. Yeah, I feel like I'm in a therapist chair. It's quite interesting. <laughs> I mean, hopefully that makes for a good program. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, could I ask? You said you said you liked music and art at school. Can I ask how old you were when you started playing music? I I was really young. Like I went. I just went to like a normal primary school, but we were just. I don't know if I don't know if all schools had this like so I'm I was born in 1982 yeah and like when I went to primary school all the children could read music in reception year one no way yeah honestly like I don't remember not being able to read music I put that down entirely to this like devoted kind of music teacher Mrs Hendrickson her name was and she was like teaching music to the whole school and it was a big school you know um in Stoke but yeah in, in that primary school I, I guess it was just down to that amazing teacher yeah shout out to Mrs Hendrickson yeah god knows what happened to her I bet my mum knows where she is but like shout out to like olden days music education as well because music you need a specialist teacher you need like it's like another language like you'd have a French teacher wouldn't you or a German teacher or whatever 
I don't know if they have those in primary schools like they used to. Maybe I was just really lucky at the school I went to, but I don't know. But the council were really supportive as well, actually thinking about it. like That's how I got into playing the trombone, mm-hmm. was in year six at primary school. Like The council came round with some instruments, four brass instruments, and I remember them coming to the classroom and saying, like, who wants to play one of these instruments? And, of course, I was just, like, obnoxiously brilliant at music by that point obviously you know oh I'm so full of myself put my hand up I'll play one of those instruments and then they like took us into another room and um tested us with the mouthpiece which you have to like sort of you have to sort of like vibrate I don't know if you play a brass instrument but you have to like vibrate your lips while you're playing it and I couldn't get a note out of it yeah so I was like put on a waiting list to play so I didn't get one of these four instruments and and then I was put on a waiting list to get one of these instruments. So inevitably, as all the children stopped playing because they lost interest, I was like one day handed this trombone from the council. And then like, that's obviously, that's what I do loads now of. So hats off to Stoke-on-Trent Music Service as well. (laughs) Yeah. So what happened next? You kind of persisted with that. How did you end up doing what you do at the moment? Yeah, I played the trombone and then I went to like high school carried it on my dad actually bought me a trombone at some stage when I was about 14 and I was in the Stoke-on-Trent wind orchestra for years until I was about 18 which I absolutely loved I loved being in the orchestra and then I went to college I actually took a music A level and failed it so that was bad (laughs) I mean the whole class there was three of us in the class and we all failed it oh god yeah exactly and then like the year after the whole class I think bar one like failed it and the guy like left shortly afterwards yeah because my intention was to go and study music tech at Hull University that was that was what I was going to do okay and then ended up like failing music was just like oh great what we're gonna do now so I fell back on like art ended up doing photography and art history in Manchester Uni which was absolutely amazing because I got to get really involved with like the DIY gig scene. I, I organised Ladyfest Manchester in like 2002 or something. Great. And got involved with like DIY, like organisation, putting on gigs, uh, met loads of amazing people who are still friends now, really. But then I didn't play a note for like three years following that heartbreaking incident with the A-level. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Which is so knackers in retrospect. Yeah, but yeah, but I was still really actively involved with music, like I say, putting gigs on and that. But then I met my friend Kelly Jane Jones, who was, she's my best friend still. I uh, met her when I was 18 and she was like, oh, I've heard that you heard that you play guitar. This is about when we were, we were about 21 by this point. Yeah. And um, I was like, yeah, I used to. I don't anymore. I don't anymore. And then she's like, let's let's do it, let's do it. And she like forced me to do it after a bottle of wine. And um, we ended up forming a band and got back into it that way, basically. And then and then the trombone was like always just like in the house around. And actually I've only really picked the trombone back up about eight years ago, get, getting back into it. Uh, forgive me if this is a, a tricky question, but after that happened with your A-level then, was it because of that that you just stopped playing completely? Yeah, yeah, I was heartbroken. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's like my singular love of, like, in life, you know what I mean? I was just like, oh, God, yeah. I'm a Like, totally sort of bypassing the fact that everybody else had failed as well and it wasn't really yeah. at all um, in retrospect. And, I, have, you know, I've obviously pondered upon this, but I even, like, even to this day I have, like, dreams about failing that A-level, oh, which, I, which is pretty wild um but yeah I've spoken to like various music teachers and they were just like you just had a crap teacher it's not your fault yeah I mean it definitely sounds like if everyone else also failed and the year after I mean (laughs) there's no question there's no question but obviously in the back of your head you're just like what could what could have been different there by the same token like a-level music is absolutely is absolutely rubbish like even now you know so it's so boring really if you're not into classical music wasn't you know I was into like I was Britpop by that point so it's just like pulp oasis whatever and I was just like up for having a good time as well so it's probably a little bit my fault as well (laughs) you've been kind enough to agree to share some of your music with us today could I ask you to introduce uh, the track that I'm about to play and maybe tell us a little bit about it um, so this track I picked is called Nowhere from the Water to Go and it's by the slowest lifts. This is a band I'm in with, with 
very good friend of mine, Julian Bradley, and it's a nine minute epic. <laughs> so uh, combining like guitar and vocals and loads of electronics. And uh, I picked it because it's the most proggy of our tracks. <laughs> Fitting in with the theme that we're about to discuss. Thank you. 
The specific project that you're here to talk about today is called Progland. You mentioned that the track we just played was the most proggy one that you could find to tie in with that. And you've described it to me as an installation that's a modelled theme park based on prog rock album covers. So how would you describe Progland to someone who doesn't know anything about art installations or prog rock? Okay, Um, so prog rock is a genre of music born out of hard rock, I suppose. It's from like the 60s, late 60s, 70s. Bands like, yes, King Crimson, Gong. And they're playing like long form, like rock music, where it's not unusual for it to have like tons of key changes, tons of like time signature changes. So there'll be like loads of different tempo changes within the piece as well. Not like a normal like rock song, you know, like Black Sabbath or something like that, where it's just like one, two, three, four. This will just like change and change and change and change and be progressive. That's where the word, I guess, is uh, is from. And an installation would be a a gallery space. It'd be like a, in my mind, really a, a room. Perhaps it could even be outside. Saying that, it, a sort of like um, defined space where a piece of art is placed on a big scale so it would, it would maybe take up a whole space in a room as opposed to like a painting on a wall that wouldn't be an installation. Progland then is a combination of kind of those two things? Um, yeah to be honest I didn't think too much about the musical side when I was doing it so I was quite interested when you put that question in there. I guess so a bit of context really was I used to live in London and I was at that time um, making quite a lot of like visual art installations with um, my good friend Billy A B, and we were like making cardboard kind of projects. Where, we, for example, one one time we took over a gallery in um, East London and created cardboard Hawaii. We spent <laughs> weeks on it. We like made, we made like palm trees, beaches, painted it like Technicolor. And um, I did make a soundtrack for it as well. So I made this kind of like skewed, kind of warped Hawaiian soundtrack. Yeah. So people would like come and just hang out and have a drink or whatever and sit on under a palm tree. And then we made these giant like ro- this robot costume and a, and a dinosaur costume. And then we had a big fight in the first night of the um, of the gallery show. We had a fight. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's a video I'll have to send it to. It was pretty wild. And so they, and then, so basically the, the robot on the dra- and the dinosaur like fought to the death and ripped down Hawaii in the process. So it's kind of like, almost like a computer game kind of style to it. And I was doing like the sort of, the soundtrack to it. So that was like one of our projects and we're doing like various projects like that. So I guess that's why, that's where I came up with like Progline was kind of like out of that. I was sort of listening to quite a lot of prog music at the time, coincidentally, listening to a lot, a lot of a lot of yes, really into yes. <laughs> and I was also into like free form kind of folk music as well, which has like no sort of stop, middle or end, just keeps going and going and going. And so I guess it was like a combination of like working with cardboard and like thinking about it. So I was like looking at these covers and going, oh, OK, yeah, that could be could come to life. That cover could because it's prog rock album covers are quite really kind of painterly fantasy kind of artwork otherworldly big like landscapes imagined worlds so I was like looking at a lot of these covers and going yeah that would be great for a theme park because it's like it's pop and it's computer gamey and I could imagine like walking through these landscapes so that, that, I guess that's where the kind of idea came from. And then just like one thing led to another, really. I did actually make one piece of Progland um, before I realised it was a ridiculous idea. And my sort of idea was um, that each of these album covers that I selected could be the, in the, in themselves like an original theme park ride. The one I actually made was based on Gong's Flying Teapot, which is literally that. It's like a green flying teapot, which has... Does, does it have that on the top of it? I kind of have imagined it. Well, in my head, though, I was like, you'd have the flying teapot and then you could have, you know, like swings on the outside and like it would go round and round the top and like people could sit in the swings and go around like a sort of ferry. Oh, uh, okay. Ferris yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my idea was to kind of like make these objects 
God knows how I thought I was going to do it with like the mechanics. But I made a paper mache teapot and like made it perfect. It looked just like the album cover. <laughs> and it was about half a meter, <laughs> half a meter across. Like, and it's round. It was massive. I made it at home at paper mache, like really enjoyed making it. And then I was like, what the hell am I going to do with this massive teapot? Like, I can't, I haven't got any space for this. So, yeah, so that was like the, the only thing I'd actually done. And then and then I was going to make one, like, fascinate, like, one great idea. I, I mean, God, I wish this was a place we could visit. It would be amazing. Like, um, King Crimson's uh, Court of the Kings and of the Crimson King album which has that guy on the front of it with it's iconic it's it's really famous he's got his mouth wide open and I was just like yeah that would be perfect to like go on a on a on a roller coaster through I could imagine it being like the top because it's a massive wide open mouth imagine it being the top of a roller coaster and then you just like go straight down like the big one in Blackpool or something I thought that would be like the main piece in Progland in the installation I didn't really imagine it being life size in that you could personally go on the roller coaster. I sort of imagine it being mechanized. So like, you know, imagine like little mice on it. Not not really, but that kind of size yeah. in the room going around it. So you'd have all these different like fantasy points of the room with all these crazy rides that, that little objects could go on, like a model, a model theme park, I suppose. All with all within this yes album cover which i can't recall the name of at the moment the cover is like a sort of a winter landscape so it's like white i think the background's i think the sky's pink so it's kind of like pastel pink snow landscape so you've got like that is like the main room and then like all these rides within it it's crackers (laughs) (laughs) it sounds fantastic (laughs) i've I've got to ask what happened to the teapot in the end well (laughs) Oh, it's so it's really embarrassing actually. But um, so I was living in Oval in London with my friend Ben. We had to leave because the landlady, who was horrible by the way, she wanted to sell the property. So we were packing up to move out, and for some stupid reason, I thought it'd be okay to just leave the teapot in the cupboard, <laughs> just like <laughs> under the stairs. And I was like, yeah, I'll just leave it there. I can't be asked to move this. I'll just leave it. It's fine. She could just get rid of it. I don't like this woman anyway. And then really embarrassingly, she came round just as we were moving out and she like checked all the all the doors and she found it. <laughs> she found it. I'll never forget the look she gave me. She just thought I was like off Morocco. Like, why have you got this massive? <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it was like the last thing that was about the house as well. I was like walking down the road to Camberwell with this giant teapot. After that, I don't, I can't recall what I did with it. Probably chucked it away. I mean, how do you, how do you recycle something like that? But that's one of the reasons I couldn't do it because I was just like, how, what was I thinking? Where am I going to put all this stuff? Like, I've got a tiny flat with like two housemates by that point as well. It's just like this is, this is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, that was going to be one of my questions is why it remained uh, more or less an idea and remained unfinished. So it was to do with just space and opportunity, was it? Yeah, well, also it's insane. Like, I mean, like, unless you were given like a gallery space. Yeah, it was that basically. I didn't have anywhere to do it. I also had a full time job. Yeah. And also, I don't know anything about mechanics. That's like, what? Like, why would I? And why would I suddenly know how to like move, make a roller coaster, a miniature one? But still, I don't know how to do that. But also, I didn't, I didn't want to compromise on it either. I think that was another element. I, I think I did sort of toy with the idea of it being like some drawings or something. But I was like, that's crap compared to how I actually want it. Mm. I, I've always thought about it because when I saw your tweet, I was like, it, it immediately came to mind. I was like, Progland, I need to talk about it. <laughs> But I'd love it. I would absolutely like love it if an artist was listening to the show who was way, way more capable of doing it than I was, and I could just be like the artistic director. Well, I was about to say, you never know. You never know who might pick it yeah, up. Yeah, you never know. And like, I think that would be the best thing. I think it's too big for one person. <laughs> when you were talking about it, so both the Progland installation and the Hawaii robot thing. <laughs> 
both sounds like tremendously good fun. Yeah. Is, is fun kind of central to what you would want to do in your art? Yeah, I guess so. Like, like I said, I don't, I'm not really that interested in art, like making art in the sort of visual sense. But I, I do really, really enjoy going to fun art shows. I don't, yeah, I'm not really one for like austere, like conceptual, like really, oh yeah, you have to really think about this one. Like I enjoy like play and like creative, like fun activities. And But also I think it, I think that's sort of born out of like friendship as well. Cause I, like the Hawaii thing, maybe this is a thing actually, with the Hawaii, Cardboard Hawaii was with one of my best friends and we really enjoyed ourselves doing it. Mm. It was a laugh, you know, and like we had a good time at that at the um, opening night and that was good fun whereas the Progland um, idea was a solo endeavour I don't know why I wanted it to be a solo endeavour but perhaps because of that it wasn't as fun perhaps if Billy had been involved it would have made it Mm. more enjoyable yeah I was wondering if this kind of thing is something that you do a lot is it the case that you quite often will have a big idea and then for whatever reason, it doesn't happen. Have you got like a notebook somewhere with them all written down? I don't, yeah, I don't know if I, if I tend to have an idea or just, I'll just do it. But I think I'll probably, I'll probably be a bit more realistic about what I could do. Like in recent years, I've really kind of put a lot of like uh, emphasis and kind of like interest in working within limitations. And I, I think that's quite interesting if you've only got like one guitar pedal and a guitar and a microphone what can you do with those three things and making something interesting out of that is really appealing to me and I really appreciate that skill in other people as well rather than like coveting a synth that you can't afford or a really expensive trombone which I'm currently coveting actually or like you know an installation space for example like so I'm kind of like (laughs) perhaps it took perhaps it taught me a lesson to work within my means and like seeing the value of of working within your means I think that's actually potentially a really key thing because one thing that's come up a couple of times doing this program about not finishing is people saying a bit like the prog land thing of oh you didn't have the space or you didn't have the knowledge of mechanics to make the model or whatever is that one thing that stops people from Mm. finishing projects is the 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 scale of the project and the ambition yeah and also wanting like you also said about prog land not to compromise on that so that idea of working with what you have in your immediate vicinity might be might be the answer definitely yeah and like I think that's fine so I mean I'm always like I've always got something on the go but I do I do see stuff through because I enjoy that so is that motivation to get things through to the end and have the satisfaction? Is that one of your key motivators then that helps you to be quite good at finishing? Things? Yeah, yeah. It makes me feel good about myself. Definitely. It makes me remember that I'm capable of like yeah. projects. And like a lot of stuff I do most successfully is when I'm working to deadlines as well. So like a few days ago, I got a commission. I've got like three to three weeks to finish it. That'll suit me down to the ground. I'll get that done. No problem. I do find like if I don't have a deadline, that's when stuff can go on longer. But then, like, what difference does it make? Do you know what I mean? It's not like I'm making tons of money out of, like, making art or anything, so making music. So, I mean, really, it's a hobby. You know what I mean? It's not like, yeah, okay, I make my living out of, like, music activity, but my creative kind of output stuff is a hobby, very integral to my life, but it's just, like, what I love to do. I'm quite humble realising, like, if I don't make music it's not going really going to be a problem for anyone. You know what I mean? Like, apart from me. So I'm very like aware of my positioning as not being particularly important within the grand scheme of things. <laughs> do you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. Not, not that I don't value what I, what I do, but I, I'm quite aware that it's not that important. <laughs> that sounds really bad. It's like... It doesn't sound bad. I think it actually ties in really well with one of the things that this programme is about, which is that, there is a lot of value to be found in stuff that you do either for yourself yeah. in private, you know, in your spare time as a hobby, and that it doesn't have to be listened to by millions of people in order to have a value. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I really find, like, I guess me coming from, like, a DIY background as well, where putting on gigs particularly, never made, I've never made a penny about putting on gigs. Don't do it for that reason. Um, I've always had work, I've had a job, which is kind of... yeah supported my like paying the rent paying the bills and uh, I'm totally comfortable with that anyway yeah I don't know what, what, what how I got onto that <laughs> 
Okay, so just to wrap up then, you've mentioned some video projects that you're working on and also yeah. the commission that you've got a three-week deadline for. Could you just give us a little bit of an overview of what your next things are, what those projects are about? So I'm working on a video for Tusk Festival. They asked me to talk about the DIY lifestyle and what that was, what that meant. I'm working with an artist called Roy Claire Potter and we've been we've made as it's kind of like a spoof of this morning remember that tv show or oh, it's still on I suppose yeah so we've made a spoof of that and it's called the DIY lifestyle show <laughs> and it's sort of split into different sections so we've got like a cooking section we've got a fashion section uh letters Roy's going to um dress up as a psychic and do like a psychic reading so uh, yeah we're doing that <laughs> I, I do I've, I've actually through lockdown I, I guess I've I've made like a few different videos from various like online like concert streams and they've all they've all come with like a sense of humor I've been, I've been getting quite interested in like comedy within music I suppose okay. that goes back to what I'm saying about stuff being fun and do enjoy like yeah fun and having a laugh within music and art and stuff and then the other one is for the BBC, actually. It's quite um okay. quite a nice one. Yeah, they want me to make a piece of music which supports a poem or piece of prose that I'm yet to be sent, actually. And it's going to be wow. performed. Yeah, it's quite cool, isn't it? It's, it's going to be performed at um, some poetry and literature festival. So I'm just waiting for the poem to come through the post right now, as it were. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, I think it's not going to be very long. It's just like a piece of music. So it'd be like three minutes or something. And then I'm finishing off a solo album. So I've got a stu- I've actually got a studio now, and the studio have given me a commission to finish off a solo album, which means that it'll probably come like a lot faster than had I not had the deadline or the commission. <laughs> I've got a bit of an interest in humour and comedy, so I've got to ask you what the comic music looks like. I don't think it's not. I haven't made like comedy music. I'm not like making like. Some like I'm making a song with a joke in it. Although, no, I wish I. No, no, I don't think I would do that. But it's it's more like um. So I made I made this video which was called Adoption Tale. I got me and my other half Jake to sit on the sofa and we pretended that we were answering questions about adopting a trombone. <laughs> it's on YouTube. I'll send it to you. It's like Tammy the trombone. We take Tammy for a walk and. <laughs> Just make up stupid stuff about the trombone, basically. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it was good fun. And then I did another one called Duvet Day, which is like I'm playing under the duvet, the trombone. That's more like a noise music set, but obviously because it's under a trombone, I'm like under the duvet. I'm like, and then I'm playing the trombone, which makes the duvet move and stuff. Yeah, it's funny, but it's like serious noise music, you know. <laughs> That has actually come out of the COVID-19 lockdown days. I did a live performance on for the old police house, which is up your way as well, that, which was online. And I did, it was called Dial a Bone. <laughs> these stupid, these stupid titles. Dial a Bone. So like people in the chat room while they were watching the video had to select what I was going to do live. So I had like, it was really simple things like like high or low long or short and then we'd make a combination I'd improvise a piece around that I found that quite entertaining for me and then like I'll have a really good time doing it I've sort of found when you've got an audience on board literally like they're telling you what to do they have a good time as well you know that's just what I've done in lockdown but I think the trombone's an intrinsically quite amusing instrument so (laughs) good fun Shadow Radio Star and Shadow